Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. May 1. On this date in history, in the year 1955, Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias wins the final LPGA tournament of her career. Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias One of the greatest athletes in sports history wins the Peach Blossom LPGA Tournament in Spartanburg, South Carolina. The victory, the 41st LPGA title of her career, comes as Zaharias continues her battle with colon cancer. After a strong start to the tournament, Zaharias falters in the final two rounds, but she holds off runner-up Marilyn Smith and wins by two strokes. The Babe's victory in South Carolina was the final time she set foot on a golf course for an LPGA event. Despite her worsening sickness, she summoned a legendary effort that weekend and would later write in her biography, I still wasn't ready to admit that I wasn't in the condition to play. I was more determined than ever to win one. Over the course of her amateur and professional golf career, Zaharias won 82 tournaments, including 10 majors. Her final major win at the U.S. Women's Open came after her cancer diagnosis. She won that tournament by 12 strokes while wearing a colostomy bag. Golf probably wasn't even Zaharias's best sport. She dominated track and field at the 1932 Olympic Games, finishing with gold medals in the 80-meter hurdles and javelin throw. She earned a silver in the high jump. On September 27, 1956, less than two years after her final golf tournament victory, Babe Didrikson Zaharias died. She was 45. May 2. On this date in history, in the year 1933, the Loch Ness Monster was sighted for the first time, igniting the modern legend. The modern legend of the Loch Ness Monster is born when a sighting makes local news on May 2, 1933. The newspaper, Inverness Courier, relates an account of a local couple who claimed to have seen an enormous animal rolling and plunging on the surface. The story of the monster, a moniker chosen by the Courier editor, becomes a media phenomenon with London newspapers sending correspondence to Scotland and a circus offering a 20,000-pound sterling reward for the capture of the beast. After the April 1933 sighting was reported in the newspaper on May 2nd, interest steadily grew, especially after another couple claimed to have seen the animal on land. Amateur investigators have for decades kept an almost constant vigil, and in the 1960s, Several British universities launched sonar expeditions to the lake. Nothing conclusive was found, but in each expedition, the sonar operators detected some type of large, moving, underwater objects. In 1975, 
Another expedition combined sonar and underwater photography in Loch Ness. A photo resulted that, after enhancement, appeared to show what vaguely resembled the giant flipper of an aquatic animal. Further sonar expeditions in the 1980s and 1990s resulted in more inconclusive readings. Revelations in 1994 that the famous 1934 photo was a complete hoax has only slightly dampened the enthusiasm of tourists and investigators for the legendary beast of Loch Ness. May 3. On this date in history, in the year 1933, funk master James Brown is born. Soul brother number one, the godfather of soul, Mr. Dynamite, sex machine, the minister of the new, new super heavy funk. These are some of the names by which the world would eventually know James Joseph Brown Jr., the revolutionary musical figure who was born on May 3, 1933. The story Brown himself would often tell is that he appeared stillborn when he first came into the world, but that an aunt attending his birth managed to breathe life into him. Long before he changed the course of 20th century popular music and crowned himself the hardest working man in show business, little James Brown may well have been the hardest working boy in Augusta, Georgia, where he was sent to live with his aunt Honey in Washington at the age of six. He spent the previous several years with his father, James Sr., who scraped out a meager living selling pine tar to the local turpentine factory in the woods of Barnwell County, South Carolina, just down the Savannah River from Augusta. James's mother had left with another man when James was only four, and while Aunt Honey would play something of a maternal role for James, the fact that she ran a brothel and sold moonshine for a living made for anything but a traditional upbringing while other famous musicians of his generation would get their musical training in the traditional context of the church, James Brown would get his on the street, where between jobs as a cotton picker, coal scrounger, and shoeshine boy, he also danced and sang to attract clients to his aunt's place of business. He honed his talents further in prison, where he was sentenced to serve 8 to 16 years, for stealing from parked cars at the age of 15. An experience that might have broken another man, however, instead inspired Brown to dedicate himself to music. He did his first gospel singing while in prison, where he earned the nickname Music Box, and impressed his warden and the Georgia State Parole Board enough with his seriousness of purpose to win his release after only three years. At the age of 19, a highly motivated, worldly, wise, and ferociously talented James Brown walked out of prison and began his climb toward music greatness. Born on this day in 1933, James Brown died on Christmas Day, 2006. May 4. On this date in history, in the year 1959, Ella Fitzgerald becomes the first Black woman to win a Grammy Award. Called the First Lady of Song, Ella Fitzgerald becomes the first black woman to win a Grammy at the Recording Academy's inaugural awards show on May 4, 1959. During the event, held at the Beverly Hilton in Los Angeles, Fitzgerald took home two of 28 awards for Best Jazz and Female Vocal Performances. Ella Fitzgerald sings in the Irving Berlin songbook Bested Performances by Doris Day, Edie Gourmet, Peggy Lee, 
and Keely Smith for Best Female Vocal Performance, while Ella Fitzgerald sings the Duke Ellington songbook, Won for Jazz Performance. That year, Count Basie became the first Black man to win a Grammy, also taking home two awards for Best Jazz Group Performance and Best Performance by a Dance Band. Born April 25, 1917, Fitzgerald's first stage performance was at the Apollo Theater in 1934 when she won first prize in an amateur singing competition. A year later, her song, A Tisket, A Tasket, became a hit, and her career soared from there. Over the course of her career, Fitzgerald sold more than 40 million albums, won 13 Grammys, and was the first woman to receive the Grammys Lifetime Achievement Award in 1967 received the Kennedy Center Honors Lifetime Achievement Award in 1979, and was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1992. Ella died in 1996 at the age of 79. May 5. On this date in history, in the year 1921, Chanel No. 5 perfume launches. On May 5, 1921, a date of symbolic importance to its iconic creator, the perfume Chanel No. 5 officially debuts in Coco Chanel's boutique on the Rue Cambon in Paris. The new fragrance immediately revolutionized the perfume industry and remained popular for a century. Gabrielle Coco Chanel was the daughter of a clothing peddler and a laundry woman. She learned to sew in the convent where her father sent his three daughters after the death of their mother when Coco was only 11. From these humble beginnings, she quickly established herself on the fashion scene when her lover, a wealthy textile magnate named Etienne Balsan, helped her set up her first boutique. By 1921, Chanel was a celebrated clothing designer and socialite, known both for wildly popular groundbreaking clothing designs and for her high-profile romances and larger-than-life public image. It was one such romance that led to the creation of Chanel No. 5 while vacationing in the south of France with Grand Duke Dmitri Pavlovich, an exiled Russian nobleman who had taken part in the killing of Grigory Rasputin. Chanel met the perfumer, Ernest Beau. She began to work with him on a fragrance that would bear her name, allegedly challenging him to create a scent that would smell like a woman, not like a rose. According to legend, Beau, or his assistant, accidentally added an overdose of aldehydes chemicals that helped a scent last longer, but which were used sparingly by perfumers of the time who preferred natural ingredients and fruity scents to one of the samples he prepared for Chanel. A number of reasons have been posited as to why Chanel settled on this scent. Many argue that the aldehydes reminded her of soap, a scent that took her back to her mother's laundry while others hold that she picked the fifth sample of a batch that Beau offered because of her lifelong obsession with the number five. Chanel later said that the concoction was what I was waiting for, a woman's perfume and the scent of a woman. The fragrance would officially debut along with her new collection on the fifth day of the fifth month in 1921. Even before it debuted, Chanel number no. five caused a stir. Chanel hosted a party for some of her most fashionable friends, sprayed the perfume around the table, and according to legend, was asked about the scent by every woman who passed by. The fragrance was an immediate hit, considered to be a cleaner than many of the most common perfumes, 
but also more mature and adult in keeping with Chanel's public image. Now considered by many to be the first modern perfume, Chanel No. 5 is as recognizable and enduring as Chanel's most famous clothing designs and the designer herself. May 6. On this date in history, in the year 1940, John Steinbeck is awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Grapes of Wrath. The book traces the fictional Joad family of Oklahoma as they lose their family farm and move to California in search of a better life. They encounter only more difficulties and a downward slide into poverty. The book combines simple, plain-spoken language and compelling plot with a rich description. One of Steinbeck's most effective works of social commentary, the novel also won the National Book Award. Like The Grapes of Wrath, much of Steinbeck's work dealt with his native state of California. He was born and raised in the Salinas Valley, where his father was a county official and his mother a former school teacher. Steinbeck was a good student and president of his senior class in high school. He attended Stanford intermittently between 1920 and 1925 then moved to New York City, where he worked as a manual laborer and a journalist while writing stories and novels. His first two novels were not successful. He married and moved to Pacific Grove in 1930, where his father gave him a house and a small income while he continued to write. His third novel, Tortilla Flat, in 1935, was a critical and financial success, as were his subsequent novels, In Dubious Battle in 1935, and of Mice and Men in 1937, both of which offered social commentaries on injustices of various types. His work after World War II, including Cannery Row and The Pearl, continued to offer social criticism but became more sentimental. Steinbeck tried his hand at movie scripts in the 1940s, writing such successful films as Forgotten Village in 1941 and Viva Zapata in 1952. He also took up a serious study of marine biology and published a nonfiction book, The Sea of Cortez, in 1941. His book, Travels with Charlie, describes his trek across the United States in a camper truck with his poodle, Charlie, and his encounters with a fragmented America. Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize in 1962 and died in New York in 1968. May 7. On this date in history, in the year 1965, satisfaction comes to Keith Richards in his sleep. In the early morning hours of May 7, 1965, a bleary-eyed Keith Richards awoke, grabbed a tape recorder, and laid down one of the greatest pop hooks of all time, the opening riff of I Can't Get No Satisfaction. He then promptly fell back to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, the tape had run out, Richard recalled many years later. I put it back on, and there's this, maybe, 30 seconds of satisfaction in a very drowsy sort of rendition. And then it suddenly, the guitar goes clang, and then there's like 45 minutes of snoring. It wasn't much to go on, but he played it for Mick Jagger later that same day. He only had the first bit, and then he had the riff. Jagger recalls, it sounded like a country sort of thing on acoustic guitar. It didn't sound like rock, but he didn't really like it. He thought it was a joke. He really didn't think it was single material. And we all said, 
you're off your head, which he was, of course. With verses written by Jagger, Richards had already come up with a line, I can't get no satisfaction. The Stones took the song into the Chess Studios in Chicago just three days later on May 10, 1965, and completed it on May 12 after a flight to Los Angeles and an 18-hour recording session at RCA. It was there that Richards hooked up an early Gibson version of a fuzz box to his guitar and gave a riff he initially envisioned being played by horns its distinctive, iconic sound. Though the Stones at the time were already midway through their third U.S. tour, their only bona fide American hits to date were Time is on My Side and the recently released The Last Time. Satisfaction was the song that would catapult them to superstar status. Forty years later, when Rolling Stone magazine ranked Satisfaction number two on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, it put the following historical perspective on the riff Keith Richard discovered on this day in 1965. That spark in the night was the crossroads, the point at which the rickety jump and puppy love of early rock and roll became rock. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for May 1st through May 7. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.